welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And we're really pleased today to welcome Sonia Sansom. And the title of today's piece is Bridging the Gap. So Sonia, please tell us a little bit about yourself and then what we mean by Bridging the Gap. Thank you for having me today. My name is Sonia Sansom, as you've said. I'm the Operational Service Manager for Liaison Psychiatry at Musgrove and Yeovil. I also manage the Learning Disability Liaison Team. What we mean by bridging the gap is bridging that gap between mental health and physical health. So for years, it's been deemed as two separate issues, two separate problems and complaints, but actually what we know is our mental health well-being our physical health well-being is very much connected so around about 15 years ago there's a real push to look at that and to try and look at the whole person in hospital so um what we know is when people are in hospital it can be quite scary 70 percent of those in the general hospitals either come in with a mental health problem or develop a mental health need whilst in hospital for a array of different reasons and that's where my teams come in and we bridge that gap we connect the physical health and mental health we provide mental health care and support within the physical health setting that's fascinating and you say 70 percent of people who come into hospital have a mental health need or develop one and most people do and and some of that will be loss and bereavement but does that mean that you see all 70 percent of people who come into a general hospital or is it is it filtered so that you see some of those in most need it depends on who's referred to us so we will see anybody on an inpatient ward or an emergency department we uh, we don't provide support to outpatients currently but so yes if they're referred we will go there's no point there's no such thing as an inappropriate referral if there's a, a acute colleague who's concerned about a person who's on their ward or in their department and they refer to us we will go over and see so the range of issues we support with it could be someone coming in who's try to end their life through suicide it could be someone who's got dementia it could be someone who has had a life-changing operation and is obviously suffering from anxiety or associated depression with that it could be someone who's in ICU and has been extubated and requires some support it really does vary no day is ever the same and it's what I love about liaison psychiatry and why I've been doing it for so long because you you're constantly tested and it's it is really rewarding to be able to reduce length of stay by providing that additional support I'm interested that you mentioned dementia because it's it's something we were discussing the other day in one of our meetings where obviously being in a a strange situation can make somebody's dementia worse but then if people get moved from bed to bed that makes it worse still. So we're trying to make sure that people don't get moved around too much. Are there other simple things like that that can be done to help people who are struggling with their mental health, whether in hospital? Yes, definitely. So um, we're really lucky in our teams because we're called 24. And what that means is we've got increased amount of clinical, senior clinical leads within the team. And each clinical lead, so each band seven role, has a clinical lead area. So one of our clinical leads focuses on older age mental health. So she she will look after and provide that expert knowledge around dementia. 
but the, the, the types of things we would look at whether it be it might be is a side room appropriate sometimes being in a, a quieter room can be really helpful sometimes it can be isolating and will impact on that low mood so we really look at the individual no rhythm adjustment is helpful for everybody so we get to know the individual what works for them liaise with the family get some collateral information to see what their interests are what their likes and dislikes are and tailor the care within the hospital environment to that I remember um quite a long time ago now but we had a gentleman who he had quite advanced dementia and he had been in the military and every night he'd had a hot totty as he called it so it created a lot of conflict within the hospital that obviously you can't give alcohol in hospital but um he described you know he wanted a hot totty so he was given some hot um apple juice and there you go there's your hot totty and that settled him so something simple by just knowing what he liked that really helped him how interesting two things come to mind on that sonia one is when i was a long time ago when i used to look after child hospital we used to prescribe sherry or whiskey at night sometimes but the other thing well i i worked at tone vale hospital many many years ago um with my consultant on the dementia wards uh, and um there was a there was a retired doctor there who had quite advanced dementia but he used to go to the ward office and say nurse show me the x-rays so, so he sort of remained in remained in a role slightly. Of course, he didn't know where he was or what what it was all about. But Peter, you had a question for Sonia. Yes, I, I was interested, Sonia. You mentioned older people specifically, and of course, we know that, um, for instance, uh, with depression, often older people would will present with physical symptoms. So. I imagine that it's sometimes the case that somebody would be, say, being investigated for abdominal pain, and actually their problem is a mental health problem and depression. Is is that something you come across? Yes, we do. And we've also we've set up um, an outpatient clinic for persistent physical symptoms, uh, which is where like, exactly what you've just said, where someone's presenting with physical symptoms, where actually it's an unmet psychological or emotional need. This is something that we're doing a lot of work on. Um, it's really important. And then what we are also able to do now with our um, outpatient clinic is to provide some ongoing interpersonal therapy for that individual, which enables us then to signpost on. We had someone recently who was coming on re with repeated abdominal pain through our emergency department. And actually, through a couple of sessions with our consultant psychiatrist and specialist nurse, we realised that actually the underpinning issue was a marital breakup. So by, by being able to get to know him and signpost him to the right um, care, that's that's prevented his tenants to the emergency department and he's get, achieving a better outcome and adjusting to life as it is now. Fascinating. Uh, hospitals are very stressful places, aren't they? You're, you're worried about what's going on with you. You're often in discomfort. Uh, you're disturbed sleep. Um, you, you lose control. And that's just the start, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um i've read reports for instance where people get over uh surgery more quickly if they can look at the tree outside um is are you involved in trying to improve the physical environment of hospitals generally to make them less less space age for people Yes, we are lucky, and particularly in Taunton, there's a lot of work that is and has been going on around the hospital itself, the environment. 
One idea that really comes to mind where we've been very involved is with the emergency department assessment room. So we are plan accredited. Do you know what plan accreditation is? It's the um, oh, it's a psychiatric liaison accreditation network. It's basically a set of standards that the CCQI um, own that sits within the Royal College of Psychiatry. And those standards are, are measured against best practice and the CQC standards. There's about 182 altogether. And one of the sets of standards really looks at environments, the importance of environments. So our assessment rooms at Yeovil and Musgrove are plan accredited. So that it looks at the deck of the room. Is there two doors of the appropriate furniture, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, we do get involved in the environment. Can I just ask an old fashioned question on that is, are we allowed pictures on the wall? Because I used to have pictures of nature in my consulting room and I found it very beneficial and calming. Uh, not just for me, but for others. So are you allowed pictures on the wall in some of these plan accredited rooms? Yes. And I don't know if you've been to the room here at Musgrove Park. We've got a mural that goes all the way around that was actually painted by uh, one of the service users. Yes. Yeah, you are. And a related question to that. The last time I visited somebody in hospital, I took them a bunch of flowers and was told I couldn't bring them in because of infection control, which seems a great shame. Is is that um, something you, you would comment on? Um, it's a shame, isn't it? Because I think flowers and plants do bring a lot of joy to people. But yes, I think the infection control, particularly in this day and age where we've got increased levels of infection of all sorts, hospital and choir, community acquired, the hospital and staff around the hospital are taking infection control really seriously. So there is a... Sadly, there is a reduction on the ability to have things like flowers and plants. We often talk on this this podcast about how lucky we are in Somerset to live amongst such beautiful nature and to have easy access to it. But when you when your liberty is taken away, and I don't mean under the Mental Health Act, but if we're in hospital, we are in a strange place. So anything that can help us adjust and make us feel more comfortable and safer is is useful. Sonia, you mentioned a huge range of of things that of conditions that you get asked to see. Now, do these crop up as emergencies or could you see somebody today or are do they come through on a clinic basis or what's what's the structure and the setup of the service? So we're a 24-hour service on both sites 7 days a week. And we are aligned with national expectation around response time. So if someone's on an inpatient ward, they will be seen within 24 hours. And if somebody is referred from the emergency department, they will be seen within 60 minutes. We report on this monthly and I personally do exception reporting on every single case where we haven't responded within those timeframes. And if we haven't, I look at why we haven't. And, and that allows me to see whether we can actually improve pathways and service delivery. But I'm so pleased to say that on average, we respond between 97 and 98% of the time within an hour to ED. And on the whole, 100% within 24 hours since I've been here in post over the last four years, which is fantastic. That is absolutely brilliant. And we know that the demand for mental health services have gone up by about a third since the pandemic. So the fact that you're still coping with that demand uh, is, is, is brilliant. 
Do you think people have a different attitude to hospital following COVID? Do they see it maybe as a less safe place to be than they used to? Yes, I do think there's a lot of fear around coming into hospital, for sure, particularly with, I mentioned that I managed the learning disability liaison service as well. Some of our local care providers are concerned about their residents coming into hospital because obviously they're they've got more um, vulnerabilities to be concerned about but what we do we offer a lot of reassurance masks are available throughout the whole hospital a lot of the staff in the clinical area still wear masks and PPE so we do look at providing that reassurance and reasonable adjustments if if I, I, I happen to a clinical shift as often as I can as a manager I think it's really important to maintain my clinical skills so on Sunday I worked in ED for a 12 hour shift um, across ED and the hospital but predominantly in ED on Sundays it happens and I'll always say someone would you like me to wear a mask and I'm happy to do that and that's what my team do too I'm really lucky I have an excellent team across both sites and Andrew picking up on what you said about um, people being in hospital and it can be quite scary um, we have a volunteer with lived experience so a volunteer the history of mental health and also autism and um, he works here three days a week and actually what he brings to the service is something very different he's able to go up and be with just be with people do you know what I mean and he reassures them and when he says you know I know exactly what I feel he does and the feedback has been amazing we've also got um, a volunteer in the learning disability liaison team as well Um, got a young woman with profound learning disabilities also deaf she goes around the hospital and she also see our patients with learning disability and it's created this really inclusive vibe, which is fantastic. And she spots things that we don't spot. So we had one chap who was severely dehydrated. No one could get him to drink anything. He was refusing IV fluids. And it took um, our volunteer to go up and just and in her way, with she's got this special device because she signs. You know, and she found out that actually only ever drinks Coke. So she went down to the shop with her personal assistant, bought Coke, and that was it. He was drinking. Uh, honestly, we've got loads of stories. Our other volunteer who works for the PLT side, so the psychiatric liaison team side, we had a lady who wasn't eating. She had autism. And because of his own experience, he was able to support her to go from eating a cashew nut to whole range of food. Her BMI improved and she was discharged. So we like to look at things in a creative way. We don't just stick with ways of working just because that's how it's been done. That's brilliant to hear. And we're we're using the voluntary sector more and more because of what they can give, particularly if somebody's got lived experience. Are you looking for volunteers? Is, is, Is there somewhere where they can contact you if they would like to become part of your team? Absolutely. Somerset Foundation Trust opposite an excellent, excellent volunteer network. And we've got lots of ways you can offer support. You can uh, approach individual teams like mine. You can join the Recovery College. That We've got Recovery Partner Network, which is absolutely unbelievable. I chair and meet. I feel, I'm really passionate about co-production and look at patient-to-care experience. So I chair a meeting every six weeks. It's myself and recovery partners. That includes care representatives as well. And what we do, I present feedback to them that we've had, you know, can say, look, this is the being the construction year. What can we do? Any ideas? We run quality improvement projects together. So I had a vision that when I joined just under four years ago, I wanted every single staff member from 
cleaners, nurses, admin, doctors, all to go on quality improvement training. And with those cohorts that went through, you pick up a project. And um, not only that, I was really keen to get experts who experience working alongside my team on those projects and on that training. And it's been really successful. We've got all sorts of things going on from that as a result. It's just really improving all patient care and our the we call it our PLT recovery forum that we have um that I chair I'll, they just keep me in check they'll say have you thought have you thought about this I'm like no I haven't thought about that it's an excellent idea we're going to try that well and if it doesn't work doesn't matter we'll try something else and um what's happened as a result of everybody being trained in QI it's given the team the real motivation to come up with new ideas because it doesn't matter if it doesn't work there's no blame and the ideas that we come up with now are fantastic for example we've got a um for our learning disability liaison side we wanted to improve communication with patients with learning disability and the confidence amongst our acute colleagues so our volunteer is videoing um, ways of saying certain words like pain thirsty hungry and we're going to release one a week via our internet. It's going to be called Lily's Word of the Week. And those uh, words and QR codes are going to be form a huge poster going in the clinical areas. So if a, if a nurse wants to ask Joe Bloggs in bed to, oh, I think he might be thirsty, rather than shine away and not asking, which does happen, she can go to this poster, scan the QR code, learn how to ask, are you thirsty? And go to that patient and ask in a way that they're going to understand so that's just an example of one of the QI projects that's come out of this group we have and by having volunteers in our teams. I can hear your tremendous enthusiasm as an enabler and as a manager, Sonia. But moving to yourself personally, just what's, your, what's been your background and your route into this over, the, over your career? Please do share with us. OK, yes, I will. Well, as a little girl, and I mean about five or six, I used to, when you could go to work with your family members in school holidays, I used to go with my aunt. She worked in a massive old institute in Macclesfield and I mean a Victorian type mental health hospital but you wouldn't really call it a hospital actually it was an institute so I used to go with her and go to the ward so I just became really interested from very young in mental health because I remember looking at this one lady and I thought she was really scary she I now know she was probably on old style antipsychotics and had those extra side effects you know kind of rocking and shuffling tonga and ever so I was really afraid but actually I used to then started playing cards with her and I realised she was a really nice lady. She wasn't scary. So that's what she is, what piqued my interest in mental health. So um, at 18, I went to uni. I did my nursing degree in mental health. I've done an array of jobs. I've worked on an inpatient ward, early intervention. I've worked in the community, um, site liaison, home treatment. I never wanted to be a manager. That was never in my horizon. I was a clinician. I love working with patients. And it's something I kind of fell into. And I really love it. I love being able to motivate and engage those around me um, to be the best versions of themselves as clinicians. And I do think the type of manager you are really shapes the teams around you. Um, I remember when I first came here, someone said, oh, I think we need to look at the letters. Let's look at letters. What do you want to do about the letters? Oh, can we try it? Yeah. Well, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. We can try something else. And it's created this really flexible, involved team across both hospital sites, which is fantastic. 
That's just great to hear. Peter? It, absolutely fascinating and echoes of my own uh, memories of, of visiting my aunt in a, a similarly old Victorian uh, mental hospital from time to time. Um, you must, as well as, I mean, your enthusiasm, your positivity comes across, but you must also come across people who are coming to terms with having a, a, an illness that they can't get over, for instance, or, or or families coming to terms with the fact that their relative might not be coming out. Is, is that something that your team is responsible for, or is there a different team to help those people? I think that's everybody's responsibility. The importance of involving carers and loved ones is crucial. From the minute that person walks into the hospital, whether that be on the ward or in A&E, as a team, we will be reaching out and working with those individuals because at the end of the day, fear and not knowing, is it, 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 that impacts on that interaction and the support that a loved one can offer somebody, their, their other loved one. So as much support that they can get, as much information, because often um, – Families don't really understand what's going on with their husband or wife who might be depressed or that might have started self-harming. Whatever that, the mental health issue might be, information, involvement and support is absolutely key. We've recently developed, uh, I mentioned about the recovery partners earlier, we were involved with um, the Somerset Arm of a National Project around improving access to those in the community around self-harm. So there's a big taboo around self-harm. So what we did, uh, we've developed a web page. And on that web page, there's all sorts of information about self-harm. What is self-harm? Who self-harms? What does that mean? And there's infographics on how to manage self-harm or burns. Or, but there's also re, um, some stories of hope. So some there's poems, there's videos of people going through it. But there's also a carer's corner, what it's like to care for somebody with a mental health problem who self-harms. So it's really excellent. It's on the Open Mental Health website and it's really worth having a little look at, particularly there's a, an amazing poem on there that was written by a young lady in one of our services um, and it's called I'm a Survivor. Absolutely worth having a read through. It's really inspiring. That's absolutely great to hear. That's fantastic. So here you are in psychiatric liaison dealing with people who are in hospital. And what's the, what's the link up with when people go home from hospital? How does that work? Well, earlier on, I mentioned that we, we get to know that individual and ongoing care is very personalised to that individual. So we work really closely with colleagues in the home treatment team. So the home treatment team is a service that can provide quite intense support and treatments the alternatives are inpatient admission. We try and avoid that where possible, which is where the home treatment team is crucial. We've got excellent community services. We've got the open mental health service with strong collaboration with our VCESE colleagues. So it's really about that person. Um, we've, we've got a number of um, high intensity user offers as well. So we work as a system looking at those who attend frequently and what else we can offer as an alternative. So we really look, we look at the person as a whole and we are very aware that one intervention might suit you and might suit myself, but might not suit Peter. So it's really about personalising care. And I'll just unpack VCSE oh, for sorry. anyone who isn't familiar with the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the voluntary sector, basically. And we've it's something that we 
baked in to our new open mental health service is having uh, people with lived experience, uh, peer support, voluntary sector support. Uh, and I, I think that's been absolutely transformative um, because these are really people who know what they're talking about. So, um, yes, I'm delighted that you you make use of those and have, have given them a, a plug here. Oh, definitely. I'm glad you've given a plug for open mental health. And I'm just going to give a credit at this point, Peter. You've uh, you've been one of the instrumental people that have helped help this enable it to come forwards in Somerset. So we're just very proud of what's been able to be achieved in Somerset over the last few years with this. One of one of a, a large and enthusiastic team, um, but yet yeah, it, it's exciting now to see all these things that we talked about a few years ago bearing fruit. And actually making a difference to people's lives, and we're we're wonderful to have enthusiastic people like you, Sonia, leading these teams and, and making such a difference to people. And as you say, largely enthusiastic team, which actually includes our producer, who is uh, in his day job is uh, is a <laughs> mental health commissioner. So <laughs> it's uh, fascinating to see. Sonia, what key messages would you like to share with our our listeners in the last few minutes that we've got? I think the key messages for me are around not separating physical health and mental health. We're quite complex beings. And rather than in times past, we've really, because of that, we've separated services. It's important to collaborate, work together, and then we'll achieve the better outcomes for those that need our support and care. And to really listen to those with lived experience. That's fundamental. And Andrew, I know you like your classical quotations, so I'll preempt you. Um, the ancient Greeks or possibly Romans said it first, didn't they? Mens sana, corpora sana, a healthy mind and a healthy body. You need both, don't yes. you? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And Sonia, where would you like to take psychiatric liaison in the next next two or three years in an ideal world? What, what else would you like to do? In an ideal world, I'd like us to be able to expand to the point we can have more outpatient clinics where we can then, rather than keep people in hospital, we can have clinics like dementia and delirium clinics so people can go out and come back to see us. I'd like to see more experts by experience and peer support workers working within the teams. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where I'd like it to go. That sounds great. And I think with, with my commissioning hat on now, uh, any suggestions you put forward, we will pick up enthusiastically. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> as much as finances allow, because you're you're clearly somebody who can make things happen and make a difference to people. That's what we want. It's been a fascinating episode, Sonia. Thank you so much for joining us. And um Go well and keep up all the great work. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.